You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. I'll be reading from chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The first epistle of Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Good morning, everyone. We have Redemption Hill Kids, so if that serves you this morning, ages 2 to 4 and 5 to 9, you may be seated. You may go now. We also have kids' sermon notes, if that serves you. I printed out some more this week, along with totes that are in the hallway. Thanks for Redemption Hill Kids uh, volunteers for serving our kids this morning. I know Aaron's teaching the, the older kids. <laughs> what a good-looking crew today. How y'all doing? Better? All right. All right, this morning we're working through our sermon series called, as you might know, The Grace of Salvation. A goal of working through this sermon series, as I've been stating, is to put a spotlight on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we put a spotlight on the grace, mercy, goodness, and love of God. Uh, We put a spotlight on what God has done for you, right? Think of it this way. Why would we even bother gathering if not for what God has done for us in Christ? Why even bother? If the gospel of Jesus Christ is not the primary focus of this church and in your life, then we gather just like any other club would gather. It could be around a shared experience, could be around 
uh, something you like to do. You can gather around moralism, right? Some churches gather around that idea. No, we are unapologetic that we gather because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. That's why we gather. Unapologetic. If you're not a Christian, I pray and hope that you will encounter the saving love of God through knowing Jesus Christ. That you would truly understand why we gather as a local church. So, that's why we're doing this sermon series. Put that spotlight on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, that's never, and I, and I hope you feel this too, that's never a waste of time. Never. It's always a worthy use of our time. Today is the penultimate sermon of this sermon series. Uh, In previous weeks, we looked at how and why God calls his people. Uh, We then went to John 3, and we learned about regeneration. So we had effectual calling and then regeneration. After regeneration, as a reminder, we looked at the importance of faith and repentance in the Christian life. Uh, Two weeks ago, we saw justification. Christian, you've been declared not guilty. By God the Father. And last week we looked at the doctrine of adoption. Today, as you can probably tell from the text, we're looking at sanctification. I'll explain that in a moment. And then next week, we'll look at this word called glorification. Like, the question we'll be asking next week is like, what happens when you die? (laughs) Right? What's that like? And so, one of the goals is to help you to see that sanctification is leading us toward glorification, which is why it's last. So again, these doctrines are like a golden chain that are together about the saving work of God. So pray for God's help, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, I need your help this morning. I confess, as Dean prayed, I'm praying right now, I am needy, I need help. And we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's objective And that it speaks into our lives. That you have spoken and you continue to speak to us. And Lord, my prayer this morning is that I would be faithful with what you've already said. Pray for my friends in front of me, Lord, that in the power of the Spirit, you indeed be sanctifying their lives as your word is preached. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you can tell from the public reading of Scripture, we're in 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 9. And as you can see from reading verses 1 through 9, these verses are packed actually with a lot of theology. It probably, if I would go through 1 Peter expositionally, which we are accustomed to doing, and we'll do this in Hebrews in several weeks, we'd probably spend two or three sermons on verses 1 to 9. There's just so much there. Now I'll draw out several points this morning, but my main focus is on the word that you read in verse 2, sanctification. Here are a couple of verses not in 1 Peter that capture, I think, the essence of sanctification. Here's Philippians 1.27. The Apostle Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So after the Lord saves a person, they are set on a new path. God lifts you up from the path that leads toward destruction and places you on a path that increasingly takes on the shape of Christ, increasingly takes on a shape that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The theme theme continues in Ephesians 4. We read, 
I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Paul's writing here, urge you to walk in a manner worthy. There's that word again, worthy. Worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The first sermon in this sermon series was about how God calls his people to himself. If God has called you Christian, then you are to walk in that reality. If God has called you Christian, then what you do and say should reflect God. If you continue to read Ephesians 4, you see that God says that we are to be humble and gentle and patient. So there's these characteristics. Here's one more passage that drives home the point that captures the the essence of sanctification. We exhorted, again this is Paul, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom, his own kingdom and glory. You do not read the word sanctification in these passages. But we already know kind of what it means. If the grace of the gospel has saved you, God is calling you to live differently. You're to walk differently. You be you to live a life that is worthy. But here's the deal. <laughs> like living for God takes work. It really does. Living for God is good, but sometimes it is hard. Like if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you've already figured that out. Living for God is good, but sometimes it's hard. A person living for God is in this process. I've been using the word sanctification, but we can also use the word like purification. Again, even though you don't read the word sanctification in the passages I just cited, the word is actually used hundreds of times in the Bible. And at the root of the word, of this word sanctification, is the word holy. Same Greek word when you trace it back. Depending on the context, it might get translated as holy or sanctification. Hagias, same word, out of the Greek. So we say things like, God is holy. I mean, we have a holy Bible, right? A little bit ago, I used the word holy scripture. As you can see, we use the word sanctify or holy in various ways. In the Old Testament, I think this is really helpful. In the Old Testament, the theme of holiness is is even more pronounced in, in, in some ways. The idea in the Old Testament is to be cut off or set apart. That's what sanctify or holy means. You are cut off or set apart, in particular, for God. So what does the term mean in relationship to Christianity, right? What does Peter mean when he says that God's people are being sanctified, set apart, of or by the Holy Spirit? So does this use of the word of sanctification that is my concern this morning? First, allow me to define the term, right? If, you've, if the word sanctification is new to you, here's how I want to define it. It's very basic, though. The process of sanctification is for Christians who have been set apart by God, and this last part is also really important, to increasingly become more like Christ. 
to increasingly become more like Christ. Now, there's more I could pack into this definition, but I think it's at least a very good starting point. If you've been adopted into God's family, then you're called by God to become more like Christ. Your sanctification is not one moment, but one moment after, the, after another as the Holy Spirit is working in you. Your justification before God was a moment, right? He declared you not guilty, but sanctification is lifelong. Moment by moment, day by day, week over week, month over month, year over year. Even now, the preaching of God's word should have a purifying or sanctifying effect on your heart and soul. That's the hope anyways, right? That the Holy Spirit would use this to sanctify you every single Sunday. Every time you personally get up in the morning or in the evening, you grab your Bible and you read. Every time you pray. Notice that I did not mention fighting sin in my initial definition. When people talk about the doctrine of sanctification, <coughs> sin is the first thing that comes to mind. I will show you from 1 Peter the importance of fighting against sin as part of sanctification. But I want you to see that when conformity to Christ is the end goal, then fighting against sin becomes a joyful battle and not a burden. When our mind goes to sanctification is fighting sin, that's the first thing, that becomes really hard and fighting that sin becomes the boulder that is upon your back. But if the end goal is conformity to Christ, well, now we're, now we're thinking about the process a little bit differently. Right? I can fight that sin. Fighting that sin helps me become more like my Savior, Jesus Christ, as opposed to, oh, i got to fight this sin. It's so hard again and again. And we lose focus. When that ends up being the perspective, we actually lose focus of the end goal what God is actually doing in our life. Now, why is conformity to Christ the goal? Well, there's a lot of things I could say on this, but let me articulate it like this. Does truth matter to you? Does things like beauty matter to you? This other attribute, does love matter to you? Does goodness matter to you? Does mercy matter to you? Here's another attribute. Does grace matter to you? Because of sin, these attributes are marred and broken in our lives. But the path toward restoration is the Holy Spirit applying sanctification to our earthly lives. So a couple weeks ago, I used this idea that our life is like a shattered piece of glass or a mirror. Let's say a mirror and it's on the ground. And the process of sanctification is taking those pieces and putting them back together. But when that mirror is put together, who do you see? Who do you want to see more of? Do you want to see more of yourself? No, you want to see more of Christ in your life. You want that reflection to look differently than it did before. I'm all hyped up on coffee. Sorry, honey. She's going to tell me this later. So I'm just going to get that out of the way. So I, I do hope that helps lay the foundation of what we see from 1 Peter. The Apostle Peter writes to Christians who are being persecuted. I just listened through all of 1 Peter this morning, and I was reminded once again 
how that is, that is the reason why First Peter writes. Christians are being persecuted, and he's urging them on. We read about the specific geographical areas that he writes to in verse 1. Now, Christians are being persecuted because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Peter writes to encourage them and give them hope. Now, I imagine there might have been a temptation to compromise their allegiance to Christ, and that's why he writes. There might have been a temptation to give into this particular sin, idolatry. So like in the Roman Empire, first century, you could worship Jesus Christ. That usually was not a problem, depending on the specific geographical areas you're part of. But what the Romans really wanted for you, from you is to worship their gods as well. And Jesus says something else. He says, no, you worship me and me alone. And the Romans weren't having it. They said you could worship Jesus, but come on over here to our temple. Worship them too. Grab the incense, grab the lighter, let's get, the, let's get on with this. And they were being persecuted, Christians were being persecuted because they said no. So, Peter writes to give them hope and to urge Christians to endure by not having dual allegiance. Here's the reminder that, God, uh, that God's people then and now need to hear. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like that first line right there, if you're persecuted, is such a great reminder. Blessed be the God and Father that I don't worship this material world. I don't worship this politician. I worship Jesus and Jesus alone. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's more good news that he reminds them about in the midst of persecution. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We have an inheritance. May that give us hope. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You hear that eschatological focus. Jesus is going to come back. There's a lot of great theology in these three verses. But I want to sum up what Peter is saying with these words. Do not forget, Christian, what God has done for you. And do not forget, Christian, what God is going to do for you. What he has done and what he will do. God has called you to be born again. And all God's children will one day have this inheritance in light of what God has done, past tense, and what God will do, future tense, how then shall you live, Christian? I mean, it's actually kind of like a, a sobering thought. If I step back, I think about what God has done, and I truly believe what he will do. Like, how will I live then? Like, how will I live between the two gardens? Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2. And this other garden city of Revelation 21, 22. How will we live? How will you live? Will you live as you're called to live the holy life? The sanctified life? Christians are called to live a sanctified life. So from 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 9, I see three areas. Three, not six. Three areas in which the Holy Spirit awakens and enlivens a Christian to become more like Christ. Here's three. Moral obedience, 
walking through trials and increased faith. Student number one. We read the call to moral obedience in verse 2. To those who are exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification, is that word of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. We read in verse 2, it is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies. You're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is at work in and through you, and it's the Holy Spirit that sanctifies. For what purpose? To be obedient to Jesus Christ. That's what's going on here. If you're going to be obedient to Jesus, then He not only has your soul allegiance, but your entire life is progressively being shaped to Christ. If God calls you to be obedient, then there can be a a temptation to what? disobedience. Paul's just, or Peter's just saying it in the positive, but there's plenty of passages where we can see this stated in the negative. Disobedience to Christ is sin. Period. Hard stop. As I said, when Christians talk about the doctrine of sanctification, this aspect is mentioned most, and rightly so. To live for Christ is to fight against sin and to do what is right before God and man, to live the holy life. There are times in my life as a pastor where I'm preparing for a sermon and uh, the application just happens right before my eyes in my own life. And that happened this week on uh, Wednesday morning. I won't get into all the details. But long story short, is that I actually got sinfully angry, right? I was in sin, straight up, plain up. No, no way to talk around that. So I had to repent and seek forgiveness. I was disobedient to Christ. Sin is ugly. Sin is an offense before a holy God. It can damage relationships. But the aftermath of sin can lead a person down two paths. And this is what I was confronted with. And after repenting and forgiving and asking for forgiveness, is it's two paths in front of me. I could walk down this path where I'm increasingly crushed by the condemnation that comes from sin, right? Or I could take this other path where I remind myself that Christ died for my sin, and in the present, between these two gardens, I still need to militate against the sin or the temptation of sin in my life. I can fight. Psalm 144, I think, captures well how fighting against sin is like going to war. And I, I, I uh, hesitate to use war analogies because war is so ugly. But it's interesting to me that the Bible talks about fighting against sin is like going to war. Because sin is so ugly. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. Two things are true from Psalm 144, at least these verses. First, God is with you, Christian, as you militate, as you fight against sin. 
God is with you. God the Holy Spirit. He's there. Second, you are active, not passive, in your fight against sin. Like far too often, there's a temptation to be apathetic towards sin, which causes us to be passive, right? You're just like, out of sight, out of mind. If I can just, the sin that I'm dealing with, I just put it in the closet and close the door. Maybe it's actually not there, right? You just come apathetic entirely. I found this quote by John Owen really, really helpful, and it's well known. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Conforming to the image of Christ is not sitting on the sidelines, but means being on the front lines. Passivity towards sin, I think, breeds more sin. And I can argue that passivity towards your sin is a sin. <laughs> now, is the battle against sin simply moralism or legalism? Right? No, it should not be. It should not be at all. The end goal of Christian legalism is for a person to receive glory from the community. Right? Christian legalism... legalism results in more people walking around, patting each other on the back, and looking for the person to shun. It's a graceless system that we see in many churches. Graceless. I mean, under the guise of grace, Christian legalists parade around in piety. Now, for the record, and I hope this is clear, Christian ethics and morality matter. Right? It matters. Virtue matters. We were talking about sanctification for a reason. We went through the Sermon on the Mount where we were confronted with the ethical teachings of Christ. I have nothing wrong with the pursuit of piety. As a matter of fact, I think the church, universal, universally speaking, could use a dose of Christian piety. The difference between Christian legalism and a biblical vision of living for God is why do you fight against sin? Why do you live the way you live? Do you fight against sin so that your friends may pat you on the back and that you may receive more glory? The, re the reason why you do something is just as important as the way in which you achieve it. Right? Now, does it matter that others see how you live? For sure, right? For sure. Matthew 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. They may see your good works. And what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right? You do the good works and you're the workaround so that they see Jesus. So how you live and how you fight against sin and, and pursue holiness is so that others may glorify God. From this perspective, your obedience to Christ has an evangel evangelistic like, flavor or purpose. Now, here's the next reason why we fight against sin. And you know this, sin is destructive. It is so destructive. A goal of Satan is to cultivate temptation to sin so that your relationship with God and others will be frustrated. Sin is destructive by nature and will frustrate your life. We all know this. But it is the destructive nature of sin that shows the power of the gospel, right? 
the good news of Jesus Christ is that the power of sin no longer holds sway over your life. That's the good news of the gospel. Further, God has given you the tools to fight against sin. Like Christian, the moment you were adopted into God's family, areas in your life that had been destroyed by sin began to be put together through the process of sanctification. Here's another aspect of sanctification that is worth pointing out. The fight against sin and the pursuit of holiness should remind us of the day when there will be no more sin. Kind of talked about this already. We militate against sin in the here and now, knowing there will be a day when Jesus will return to complete the job. 1 Peter 1, verse 5. He is going to return to finish what he started. Jesus will return to put away sin for good. We will militate against sin now, knowing that we can rest when we die, right? And we're with the Lord, or when Jesus returns. In this respect, the doctrine of sanctification is about hope. The hope of what will come. The second aspect of sanctification, in addition to fighting against sin, is walking through trials. That's what we see in our text. The suffering you engage in life is never wasted. Suffering is an opportunity to grow in your faith and to conform to the image of Christ. Take a look at verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, Peter writing to a people that is being persecuted but has an eschatological focus, knowing that Jesus will come back. According to the Apostle Peter, the trials you go through do not need to result in bitterness. The trials you go through in life do not need to result in weariness. The trials you go through, even though you're grieved for a time, do not need to result in walking away from the Christian faith. But the trials you go through in life result in you, what does it say in the text? Rejoicing. I mean, may the Lord sanctify us to the point where we, when we go through trials, we're not bitter, but we rejoice. Why do you rejoice? You rejoice because you grow in the grace of the gospel. You rejoice in suffering to show that your faith is more excellent than gold. Right? Your faith is more excellent than all the gold at Fort Knox. We cannot minimize the sanctification, the purification that occurs when a person walks through a trial. And I certainly don't want, to, don't want to minimize the pain that a person goes through also when they walk through suffering or trial. There is pain. There is grieving. We should acknowledge that. Absolutely. 100%. Life is hard. I mean, trials are hard. The loss of a loved one is painful. The diagnosis from the doctor brings tears. Even though these trials are hard, they point to a day when there will be no more suffering or pain. No more tears because of Christ. But until that day, the trials and suffering we face take on a purifying effect that molds us ever more into the image of Christ. 
So God, as many of you know, saved me in my early 20s. And in my early 20s, um, I was just like covered with jagged edges. You can think of it that way, right? I mean, I'm, I'm surprised I don't have the regrets tattoo on my neck. <laughs> you know, just jagged edges everywhere. Some of those rough, jagged edges had to do with sin. Some of those other jagged edges had to do with how I handled myself when I went through trials or situations. What I did not know then, but what I know now, is that God had been taking me through a lifelong sanctification or purification process. In my early 20s, God broke out like the holy sandpaper. And I'm talking about the highly coarse sandpaper. <laughs> Those big jagged edges. Let's get that highly coarse. Let's, let's see if we can get that down a little bit. And you just started using it in my life. And over time, I hope and think the sandpaper has become finer. I think all Christians, regardless of when they were saved or where they're at today, should be able to look back and see the growth and change, right? Like God used holy sandpaper on you, Christian. I hope you see that and hope you realize you need that. I need that still. So do you. All Christians should be able to look at their Christian life and see God breaking out the sandpaper with different grit at various times. Sometimes the change takes time and sometimes it's immediate. Regardless, the, traje the trajectory, regardless of where you're at in your life, is always toward Christ being conformed to the image of Christ. And sometimes the trials that we go through are what it takes for God the Holy Spirit to sanctify us into the image of Christ. The third way I see the Holy Spirit sanctifying a person is through faith, greater faith, increased faith. We read in verse 8 and 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So here's the question that we're confronted with, and I would imagine the readers, the initial readers, in the first century would have to ask, how many of you have physically seen Jesus? Right? I'm going to say none of you. I'm just going to go out on a limb. We have outstanding biblical and extra-biblical evidence of the birth and death of Jesus Christ. That is true. But you have not seen Jesus, but you believe in Jesus. What does this say about you, Christian? You, Christian, are willing to conform to Christ even though you have not seen him. Only faith in God results in this kind of outcome. Faith in God, because of the Holy Spirit, right? God the Holy Spirit, coupled with the Word of God, is what allows you to continue to grow into the likeness of Christ. The first two points about battling sin and growing through trials are moot. They do not matter if faith is not the foundation. There is no sanctification unless faith is that foundation. The sanctifying work of the Spirit is dead on arrival if faith is not at work in your life, Christian. Therefore, you need to cultivate greater faith. 
I think I used this example in recent weeks. Your faith is like an oak tree. Once it's planted, it needs to be watered. The oak tree needs the sun, but over time, those roots go deeper and deeper and deeper. And when the roots run deep, you will be able to endure the trials of the world. You will be able to get up when you realize you've sinned again. You need to repent and forgive or be forgiven. You'll be able to fight against the temptation and sin. You'll be able to. You know, I, the more I studied this passage and prayed over this sermon, the more I realized the reason why so many people are uh, deconstructing their faith. Big buzzword these days, right? It seems like Sharice and I talk every other week about someone that we know from the past who is, quote, deconstructing from their faith. And Ryan and I were talking about this earlier, and it's very, actually very, very complicated uh, in terms of its definition, because it's, it's like, it's so elastic. It's like silly putty, you just can't really pin it down. It's very confusing. Now, I have to say that the postmodern philosophical underpinnings of deconstruction, deconstructionism is complicated. It's hard to find, like I said, but it has become the buzzword for people who walk away from the church. That's, that's what they say. I've deconstructed my faith and I've walked away. Peace out, deuces. What I can't do right now is fully describe deconstructionism, but what I can do is show why people have gone down the dangerous path of deconstructionism. And to just to make sure I wasn't crazy as I was pondering 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 9, I asked Sharice, what do you think about this? And she's like, yeah, I kind of affirmed where I was headed with this. I'm going to explain what's going on. The first reason is verse 8. Many people who grow up in the church have never seen Christ. Think about that. Many people who grow up in the church have never seen Christ. There was never a belief in Christ. Now, there are various reasons why a person who faithfully attends church for so many years may never see Christ. Could be legalism, lousy doctrine, unloving leadership, a bad experience, many bad experiences. And here's what I think. The gospel of Jesus Christ kind of gets put into the closet and it only comes out on Christmas and Easter. The list goes on. Regardless, and I think a sermon series like this, which places a spotlight on Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ helps blunt the predations of the devil who wants you to doubt your faith to the point where you are walking away. Like here at Redemption Hill, we make every effort to remove the obstacles that might prevent a person from seeing Christ. Look, we all battle against unbelief at some point in our life. I think if you had an honest conversation, you might be, yeah, I had those questions. But what the devil is doing is taking a moment of unbelief and walking a person away from Christ. Deconstructionism takes doubt and compounds doubt with more suspicion, right? There's a healthy way to doubt. You'd be like, you know what? I've been questioning this part, this aspect of my faith. I have this question about this moment, and I read about in the Bible. There's healthy ways to doubt within the church community. But the dangerous path of deconstructionism is to take your doubt, create more doubt, and create more suspicion. A second reason why a person will deconstruct, as they are not prepared to encounter trials. The church has lacked, I think, a theology of suffering. Generally speaking, 
There hasn't been great teaching about how the difficulties we face are for our good. We've been told that the holy sandpaper used by God is terrible when in reality it is good because that holy sandpaper is conforming us into the image of Christ. We've been told the opposite our entire life. Again, I'm not minimizing the pain and the grieving that goes on when a person is in a trial or is suffering. I'm not minimizing that at all. When that happens in this church, we should be coming around an individual and praying and caring. But is that moment wasted? No, not according to God. He uses it for your good and for his glory. So people who grow up in the church have not been prepared to handle trials and the suffering that comes from trials. So it's just like, I'm I'm walking away. I'm going to go deconstruct. The third, and I think the most dominant reason why a person will deconstruct is because they like sin. And this really presses into sanctification or lack thereof. If If I had a nickel for every time I heard this story, I would own a mansion. Not that I would want one, but I could, at least, I could at least purchase it. I've heard this. Number one, I have this sin that I've been dealing with. Number two, God tells me I should not do this sin. Number three, I actually really like this sin. And then number four, instead of fighting sin, I'm going to ditch God by deconstructing so that I can enjoy my life of sin without guilt from God in the church. Ultimately, that's what's going on. I don't want to deal with it. So I'm just going to walk away. In other words, the fight for holiness is suspended, right? The battle to conform to Christ has ceased. And instead of conforming to the image of Christ, here's what's really going on. The person is freed up to conform to whatever image that person desires with their sin in full view. Again, this is, the word is hard to define, and I grant that. But the preponderance of evidence, now this is a bit empirical, the preponderance of evidence shows me that it's dangerous and that it is the antithesis to living the holy life. One of the primary threads of 1 Peter is the call to Christian holiness. So here's the call to arms a few verses after 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. Therefore, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's that word again, as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, right? Again, that's where deconstructionism takes us. It's to giving in to our passions, to our fleshly desires, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. With Jesus Christ as the preeminent example, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, I want you to see a fantastic paradox of the Christian faith. There's many paradoxes in the Christian faith. If God has declared you not guilty and you've been adopted into God's family, you are holy. You are holy. Here's more from 1 Peter. 
but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a you are a holy nation, a people of his own possession. Like here's the other part of the paradox. You, a holy son or daughter of God, you're holy, and you need, need to continue to pursue holiness. Again, you're a part of this holy nation, 2 Peter, 1 Peter 2.9. And you need to be holy in all your conduct, 1 Peter 1.15. Like, that's a good paradox to be part of. Because we see what God has done, and then we also realize what God is continuing to do in our lives as we pursue holiness. What is a result of God, the Holy Spirit, working in your life? Well, God is glorified. We read in verse 6 and 8 of 1 Peter 1 that the glory of God is displayed when you rejoice at the trials you face and you believe in God by faith. God is glorified in you, Christian. In other words, sanctification, as I said at the very beginning, leads to glorification. I mean, next week I'll land the plane on this sermon series by looking at the full and final glorification of your life. But until then, you need to see what sanctification is leading toward. The more you conform to Christ in this life, the more you glorify God in and through your life. I have one pressing question I must answer before I end. What do I do with remaining sin? Right? What do I do with remaining sin? How can I say that you are forgiven of sin, you need to fight sin, and yet until Jesus returns, sin remains in you, right? How do I fight remaining sin without feeling the condemnation of sin, right? I mean, we read in Romans 8.1, you're therefore now, there's no condemnation. I found this quote helpful, which also maps well onto our confession of faith about sanctification. I hope it helps you. And I quote, Since some remnants of corruption persist in every part of you and me, so sanctification must work through body and soul. Sanctification is imperfect in this life, never meeting God's standards of holiness. This does not mean that the work of word and spirit is defective. Here's the ending. This is really important. But rather that it is unfinished. One day it will be finished. And we look forward to that day. But we realize it's not quite finished. I'll pair that quote with this passage from the book of Philippians. And I'm sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, in you, Christian, who began that good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Man, I look forward to that day. Because i got to tell you, sometimes fighting sin is tiresome. It is, it is weary at times. And I look forward to that day when Jesus Christ returns. And, and may I turn and you turn that weariness and that tiredness into maybe a joy? Because what is the end goal? It's conforming to Christ. God is not done with you, Christian. If you've been declared not guilty before God, you can be assured that God is not done helping you fight against sin. God is not done walking with you through tragedy. God is not done prodding you to grow in your faith. God is not done conforming your life to look like the life of Christ. Let's pray. 
You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.